This is the Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Friday, February 16th, 2024. In what qualifies as breaking news for this podcast, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who led massive protests against the government and Vladimir Putin, has died in a remote Arctic prison camp where he was serving a 19-year term. The 47-years-old Navalny was last seen just yesterday, smiling and joking during a court hearing, but is said to have lost consciousness after a walk and died a short time later. Leonid Volkov, who had worked as Navalny's chief of staff, wrote on Twitter X, quote, If this is true, then it's not Navalny died, but Putin killed Navalny, and only that. But I don't trust them one penny, end quote. Putin stands for re-election in less than a month. A brief editorial aside, there is a great deal of very bizarre Russophilia and Putin apologia among many on the very online American right. The death of Navalny in a remote Arctic prison camp a week after Putin gave a high-profile interview to Tucker Carlson, and after Carlson has posted multiple videos praising Russia and their superior quality of life while denigrating his home country and our quality of life, should shake the average idiot of their strange delusions about the country. It won't, but it should. An ex-FBI informant whose claims have been central to the corruption charges at the heart of the House's impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden was charged Thursday with lying about Biden's role in his son Hunter's business dealings in Ukraine. The charges originate with special counsel David Weiss, who has been investigating Hunter Biden since last year and charged him in December with a host of tax evasion crimes. Weiss claims that the informant, Alexander Smirnov, lied to the FBI when he told them in 2020 that Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid the Bidens $5 million apiece as part of a protection racket of some sort. These are the same claims mentioned in an FBI report to Congress that Senator Chuck Grassley released a redacted version of back in July, which included the politically explosive bribery allegations, but did not note that the FBI already considered Smirnov unreliable, never saw any evidence to back up his claims, and that Smirnov had expressed a negative fixation or bias against the Bidens. James Comer, who has been leading the Republican effort to impeach Biden in the House, blamed the FBI for failing to make clear that the source was not credible, and then downplayed the importance of his claims to the impeachment effort. This despite the fact that he has suggested that a government cover-up is the reason no more information has been forthcoming on the bribery allegations against the president. A brief editorial aside. I remember reading coverage of this when Grassley and Comer were airing these charges out and thinking, well, if this is true, there isn't any chance that Biden ends up finishing his term. He'll pardon Hunter, resign, and retire to the beach in Delaware. Of course, that was a big if, but the fact that it was coming from Chuck Grassley made me at least consider the possibility. And now, this, all these months later, and it is not at all surprising but kind of disappointing to find out that Grassley and Comer were simply not to be trusted. It's possible they didn't know Smirnov had been thoroughly discredited, but what they did know should have been enough, and at the very least they knew the FBI had decided not to pursue the matter further. 
Either they knew there was no hunt in this particular dog, in other words, or they believed the FBI neglected to fully investigate a bribery and corruption scheme allegedly perpetrated by Joe Biden and his drug addict son because of some deep state politically motivated, democratically sympathetic conspiracy or something. I'm not sure which would be worse, the disingenuous political hackery or the Trump-informed belief in the total rot of the Department of Justice. But I suspect it's a weird combination of them both. What they knew for sure was that all the incentives pointed toward making a stink about this and adding it to the list of schemes cooked up by the immeasurably corrupt Biden crime family, and that there would be no political consequences for them inside the GOP if it all turned out to be nonsense. Just the opposite, in fact. By way of analogy, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff has a pretty good shot at becoming the next senator from the state of California on the strength of a bid backed by Nancy Pelosi and the DNC in no small part because of some outrageous claims he made about Trump-Russia collusion that proved to be mostly nonsense. Grassley's too old for any of this to matter, but Comer will only benefit. Any attempted shaming of him by the other side, or worse yet, in the media, will be seen as proof that he must have been doing something right, even if the impeachment charges against Biden amount to an even smaller pile of nothing. The incentives to be disingenuous and outright lie about one's political opponents have never been higher, because the consequences for being wrong have never been lower. Donald Trump, like a small rodent in a cage that has discovered a button that, when pressed, dispenses exactly the sort of treat it craves, at a campaign stop in South Carolina, said again Wednesday night that if NATO allies are, quote, not going to pay, we're not going to protect, end quote. The assertion comes from a story he's been telling in which an unspecified European leader from an unspecified but very important European country proposes a hypothetical in which his country fails to meet their defense spending commitments under a NATO agreement and what the U.S. would do in response to that country being attacked. The furor in the media over the last week about this story has all but guaranteed it will be a staple of the Trump stump speech moving forward. Also in Trump news, the district attorney of Fulton County, Fannie Willis, testified Thursday in a misconduct hearing that could leave her disqualified to prosecute the case her office is bringing against Donald Trump over his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Willis was combative and defensive in her testimony, which will continue today, insisting that whatever relationship she had with the man she hired to prosecute Trump was irrelevant, and that no ethical or legal conflict existed in the case at all. A brief editorial aside. As the morning press has mentioned before, Trump calls forth to the public stage the sorts of people, like Fannie Willis, who see in his example a path to power and influence that once terminated in the trashier corners of the culture, gossip and society rags, television, dirty local politics, but now know no bounds. The result of this is that the Fulton County case against Trump, which is probably tied with the Jack Smith federal case for being the most sound and clearest case of criminal wrongdoing that Trump currently faces, will likely disappear. Willis will be disqualified, and no other county in Georgia has the resources and or the inclination to pursue it. Great job, Fanny. Hope the cruises were fun. 
Also, also in Trump legal news, a trial date has been set in the New York case of Trump paying hush money to a former adult film actress with whom he had an affair. The trial will begin March 25th in Manhattan, with District Attorney Alvin Bragg attempting to prove that the payments represented an illegal campaign donation to himself. A brief editorial aside, whatever the merits of this case may be, nothing has ever mattered less to the electoral prospects of a presidential candidate than the outcome here. This is the case that first fully reunited the Republicans behind Trump last March, and it will serve that same purpose every time it's in the news. Now, here's a look at the weather. It's Friday after the Super Bowl, which means we are entering speak now or forever hold your peace territory on relevant commentary about anything Super Bowl related. There are two unconnected, but maybe I can tie them together, stories that I want to touch on here. And neither of them are about the game itself, but instead about how we experience the world, how reality is presented to us, and how quickly that reality can change. First, to Usher's halftime show, Alicia Keys turned up as a surprise guest star about four minutes in, and it sounded like this. But if you go watch the performance on YouTube, as uploaded by the NFL's official account, it sounds like this. In the first, her voice cracks. In the second, the note is fine. Improved. Fixed. Something like 150 million people watched the moment live on television, but the version that will live in perpetuity on the internet, the one that will never face a copyright takedown notice, no longer admits to the mistake, has smoothed over the imperfection of the moment in favor of some alternative reality where she hit the note cleanly. Never mind what you thought you heard. This is the version that the NFL wants to be true. So it is true. Segway. The delivery service Uber Eats ran a commercial in the Super Bowl. The joke is that apparently everyone forgets that Uber Eats is a concierge delivery service from which one can order just about anything. In order to remember this important fact moving forward, one must simply forget something else, thereby creating the room in one's brain for that information. What follows is a bunch of celebrities and normies getting convenient deliveries from Uber Eats, but having forgotten something important about life or themselves in the process. Jennifer Aniston fails to recognize her friend's co-star, David Schwimmer. David and Victoria Beckham try to remember the name of the group she was in that made her famous. A man forgets how chairs work. And in the original version of the ad that debuted online in the week before the big game, there was also a brief scene in which a man eating a spoonful of peanut butter while experiencing a severe allergic reaction discovers on the jar's label that peanuts, to which he is allergic, are in fact the primary ingredient in peanut butter. There's peanuts in peanut butter? Oh, it's the primary ingredient. In response to that bit, FAIR, the Food Allergy Research and Education Nonprofit Organization dedicated to food allergy awareness, research, education, and advocacy, 
tweeted the following, quote, We're incredibly disappointed by at Uber Eats's use of life-threatening food allergies as humor in its Super Bowl ad. The suffering of 33 million-plus Americans with this condition is no joke. Life-threatening food allergy is a disease, not a diet. Enough is enough. End quote. The CEO of FAIR then released a statement last Friday, from which I will now read, quote, I have great news to share. I have spoken with Uber. They are very appreciative of FAIR's valuable perspective and feedback and have made a change to the ad that will air to the Super Bowl's wide audience. They are editing out the reference to the peanut allergy. This is an amazing outcome. FAIR would like to thank Uber for listening to our community and making the changes to their Super Bowl ad. After talking with them today, I believe we have a new ally in helping us navigate our journey with our disease. End quote. The trade magazine Variety pointed out that the original ad did run with a disclaimer in small type at the bottom of the screen that said, quote, Please, please, please do not forget there are peanuts in peanut butter. End quote. But this was obviously not enough to satisfy critics. The Uber Eats peanut allergy thing and the Alicia Keys auto-tune edit are stories about people trying to perfect the historical record before a perceived harm can take root. It's outright stupidity at play in the first case, and just kind of disconcerting in the second, but both are a sort of minor malevolence. The nonprofit Fair no doubt does some good work in service of people with serious food allergies, but the CEO's most important job is seeking instances of outrage so that she can raise the public profile of her organization and bring in more money. Attempting to quantify the harm potentially caused by the Uber Eats commercial's two-second bit about a guy forgetting that there's peanuts in peanut butter is to engage with the utterly farcical. It is to play in someone else's imagination, by rules capriciously set and never certain. Perhaps one might say, but if their feelings are hurt, then there is the harm. That even if no one individual person faces an actual real-life negative consequence because the Uber Eats commercial somehow contributed to a culture of jocular dismissiveness about life-threatening food allergies, it's still good that FAIR spoke up, because some real-life people, online anyway, did express some sort of emotional injury at believing themselves to be the butt of a joke. Perhaps you will say, they identified the potential harm, stopped it, and it all turned out fine. And who cares? You really miss the two seconds of that stupid commercial? Now who's the weirdo? Just be nice. To which I will respond, with total sincerity, that we then now live at the mercy of tyrants and psychological terrorists, to whom we should not bend the knee, against whom we must stand and fight. If the claim instead is that the CEO of FAIR was simply acting in the best interests of her organization and the people she claims to represent, that the manufactured upset was simply a practical tactic to take advantage of an opening for a great deal of exposure for severe allergy havers and their non-profit advocates, if the defense was that it was all a cynical and effective ploy to raise awareness for a worthy cause, then we are right back at the emotional blackmail again. You'll note that I have steadfastly refused to explain or attempt to justify the joke. 
The instinct to defer to the victimized squeaky wheel is a good and natural one, but not if the alleged harm is invented. Not if the wheel doesn't actually need grease, because the squeaking it's making is at some inaudible frequency, discernible only by those who seek to benefit from the performance of greasing it. When we respond to non-traumatic events in a way that pretends the trauma is real, we make ourselves less resilient to actual traumas. When we define harm down to the level of its effect on the imagined most sensitive psyche and try to remake the world to be totally safe for the creations of these profit-seeking tulpamancers, we are inculcating weakness in the very people who most need strength. We are calling forth into the world a population that will believe there is no need to hide their vulnerable underbellies. But this is not that world, no matter how we wish it. Sometimes seemingly well-intentioned people make unreasonable demands, and sometimes a voice cracks in front of the whole nation. This is the world as it is. A simple human mistake revealed the frailty and imperfection of that world, and then someone came along to insist, we can make it better. That we can correct for this by pretending it never happened. But we cannot even know who or where we are if we do not know whence we came. We must meet the world as it is. We must confront reality, not replace it with its more perfect simulacrum. We must not pretend that we can only learn new things by erasing what came before. That's not learning or growing or even really experiencing. That's just taking dictation from those who claim to know better. That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? A quick footnote here about a word I used a moment ago, tulpamancers. I said, quote, when we define harm down to the level of its effect on the imagined most sensitive psyche and try to remake the world to be totally safe for the creations of these profit-seeking tulpamancers, we are inculcating weakness in the very people who most need strength. From Wikipedia, a tulpa from Tibetan Buddhism is a materialized being or thought form, typically in human form, that is created through spiritual practice and intense concentration. A tulpamancer, then, is the person who wills this creation into being and who believes their creation to be sentient and independent. I found this to be a useful metaphor for what I was getting at here and an interesting concept. I hope you did, too. And I hope you have a great weekend. The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to BrainIronPodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at BrainIron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the BrainIron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you next week. The proceeding was created with 100% human content. <laughs>